Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What has preserved this race of Adamses and all their ramifications in such numbers? Health, peace, comfort, and mediocrity. I believe it is religion without which they would have been rakes, fops, sots, gamblers, starved with hunger, frozen with cold, scalped by Indians, etc., 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 been melted away and disappeared. With this episode, we begin a journey to explore the presidency of a man who would not only ascend to the chief magistracy in his own right, but would also be the scion of a family that would play key roles in American political history for over a century and a half. Little could his parents have known at the time of the birth of their first son that he would venture forth from their native New England and have a major impact on history throughout the North American continent, but also on the history of the world. This descendant of New England farmers, however, would prove to live a life that his ancestors could scarcely have imagined and would make the name of John Adams one of the better known in American history. Before we dive into the story, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I am Jerry Landry, and I'm honored to be your host on this, the second series of this podcast. A few words about our broadcast schedule. This episode is launching on July 4th, 2018 in honor of Independence Day, which, in addition to commemorating the signing of the Declaration of Independence, a prominent moment in Adams' life, also happens to be the anniversary of the deaths of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Thus, I thought it fitting to start this new series on this particular date. In order to give me time to get ahead on the work on this series, as well as get us back on schedule, Our next episode will not launch until Sunday, July 22nd. After that, as usual, we'll have an episode launch every couple of weeks for the duration, unless I say otherwise. Sound good? Good! I'd also like to take a moment to thank my husband, Alex Lawson, for providing the intro quote for this episode. Finally, as with the Washington pre-presidency episodes, the Adams pre-presidency episodes are not intended to be a comprehensive biography of Adams' life prior to the presidency. Don't worry, we will be going into some amount of depth to examine parts of his life that I feel are key to understanding his presidency, and you should leave with a general understanding of his pre-presidency life. However, to get a more complete picture, I recommend either David McCullough's John Adams biography or John Furling's John Adams A Life, both of which I will use as sources for this series, along with numerous others. With that said, let's get started. The Adams family had been residents of Massachusetts for nearly a century prior to John Adams' birth, with his great-great-grandfather, Henry Adams, and his family coming to Braintree, Massachusetts from Barden, St. David, in Somersetshire, England, in 1638. John would be the fifth generation to live in Braintree when he was born on October 30, 1735. An interesting side note. The birthplace of John Adams is the oldest original presidential birthplace still in existence. 
and it is open to the public as part of the Adams National Historic Park. If you go there, John was born, quote, in the front chamber nearest the street, according to Louis Pacone's book on presidential birthplaces. John was the first child born to Deacon John Adams and Susanna Boylston Adams. Deacon John was deacon of the First Parish Church in Braintree and also served as the town constable and a lieutenant in the local militia. In addition to his public service, Deacon John supported his family by farming on his 188 acres of land and making shoes. He was described as having a, quote, sturdy, unostentatious demeanor. And his son John would describe his father as, quote, the honestest man I ever knew in wisdom, piety, benevolence, and charity in proportion to this education and sphere of life, I have never seen his superior. His mother, Susanna, meanwhile, came from a family in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is closer to Boston and would ultimately become the birthplace of another president by the name of Kennedy. But that is well on down the line. Susanna's family was of a higher social standing than the Adams family. And Adams biographer Paige Smith noted that Susanna, quote, brought a touch of urban sophistication to the family. We don't know much about Susanna as nothing written by her survives, and John did not leave many of his impressions about her in his later years, though he did note that, quote, she was a highly principled woman of strong will, strong temper, and exceptional energy. Because there are also no letters to be found addressed to her, and there is primary evidence that letters were read aloud to her, historian David McCullough postulates that Susanna may have been illiterate. It would be Deacon John who would teach his son to read, opening up a world for John that he would embrace and thrive in for the rest of his life. This did not mean, however, that John always had visions of a life outside of Braintree. David McCullough provides the following description of Braintree during the early days of John Adams. Quote, The Braintree of Adams' boyhood was a quiet village of scattered houses and small neighboring farmsteads strung along the Old Coast Road the winding main thoroughfare from Boston to Plymouth, just back from the very irregular south shore of Massachusetts Bay. The setting was particularly picturesque, with orchards, stone walls, meadows of salt hay, and broad marshlands through which meandered numerous brooks and the Neponset River. From the shoreline, the land sloped gently upward to granite outcroppings and hills, including Penn's Hill, the highest promontory, close by the Adams Farm. Offshore, the bay was dotted with small islands, some wooded, some used for grazing sheep. The community numbered perhaps 2,000 people. There was one other meeting house besides Deacon John's church, a much smaller, more recent Anglican church, a schoolhouse, grist mill, village store, blacksmith shop, granite quarry, a half dozen or more taverns, and, in a section called Germantown, Colonel Quincy's glass factory. With no newspaper in town, news from Boston and the world beyond came from travelers on the coast road, no communication traveling faster than a horse and rider. But within the community itself, news of nearly any kind, good or bad, traveled rapidly. People saw each other at church, town meeting, in the mill, or at the taverns. Independent as a brain tree farmer and his family may have been, they were not isolated. John had enjoyed his early reading lessons with his father, but upon his enrollment at the local schoolhouse, he started to lose interest in learning and told his father that he intended to become a farmer like him. 
Deacon John, despite being a pillar of the community, had not been able to attend Harvard College as had his older brother, and he had already fixed in his mind that his firstborn son would attend Harvard. Upon hearing that young John did not want to pursue higher education, he put his son to work on a day of intense chores around the farm. At the end of the day, as the family lore goes, he asked young John if he was satisfied being a farmer, to which the son replied, quote, I like it very well, sir. Deacon John then said, quote, I, but I don't like it so well, so you will go back to school today. Upon further discussion with his son, he learned that it was the schoolmaster, not the learning, that young John didn't like. So he made arrangements for John to be enrolled in a private school down the road from their home, where John quickly recovered his interest in learning with the vigor that he would retain throughout his days. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. The young John Adams would not just spend his time reading, though. He explored through the countryside around Braintree, went swimming and skating, flew kites, played games of, quote, baden ball, football, wrestling, and sometimes boxing with friends and, quote, running about quiltings and frolics and dances among the boys and girls. As noted by Paige Smith, quote, imaginative, lively, quick, and handsome, John had a particular fondness for girls, and they, in turn, responded to him. From the age of 10, he made numerous conquests or fell victim himself to bright eyes and appealing smiles. This did not mean that he would let his passions get the better of him, however, for, again from Smith, quote, his parents had most solemnly instructed him in the practical morality that must guide his relations with the females of Braintree. They pointed out to him what he was certainly quite conscious of, the very evident results of breaches of the sexual code. Hasty marriages of boys and girls in their teens were common in Braintree. His would not be an after-school cautionary tale of teenage pregnancy and marriage. Instead, John later described his early life as, quote, going off like a fairy tale. These days would come to an end, though, as, when he was 15, John was deemed ready to continue his education at Harvard. John would spend four years at Harvard, during which he would embrace reading and learning as never before. As described by David McCullough, quote, The regiment at Harvard was strict and demanding, the day starting with morning prayers in Holden Chapel at 6 and ending with evening prayers at 5. The entire college dined at Commons, on the ground floor of Old Harvard, each scholar bringing his own knife and fork, which, when the meal ended, would be wiped clean on the tablecloth. By most accounts, the food was wretched. Adams not only never complained, but attributed his own and the overall good health of the others to the daily fare, beef mutton, Indian pudding, salt fish on Saturday, and an ever-abundant supply of hard cider. 
It seems that John was rather of a goody two-shoes during his time at Harvard, only being fined three shillings nine pence once, quote, for absence from college longer than the time allowed for vacation or by permission. Other than that, for four years he held himself in good standing. Likewise, he later wrote that, while he, quote, spent many of my evenings in the company of young women in his college days and in the years prior to marrying, that, quote, no virgin or matron ever had cause to blush at the sight of me or to regret her acquaintance with me. He would leave Harvard in 1755 as one of the top three in his class, and in the commencement ceremonies would present his argument that, quote, civil government was absolutely necessary for men, an argument that would form the basis of a large part of his public life. Adams had increasingly been thinking of pursuing a legal career, but his father, Deacon John, was adamantly opposed, as he felt lawyers were willing to, quote, sacrifice all to their own advancement. To be fair, the young John admitted that part of the reason he was considering the law was the pursuit of fame, as it was the profession of men from the leading families in Massachusetts. But John was also paralyzed by the fear that he may just end up a small-time lawyer. He did manage, at least for the time being, to resist his father's desire for him to pursue a career in the clergy. And John, after graduating from Harvard, accepted an offer to, quote, become the Latin master at the Wooster Grammar School, about 50 miles west of Boston, in order to take some time to decide upon his future course in life and save up some money for wherever that future course may lead. It was quickly apparent to John, though, that he did not have a passion for teaching. He would later proclaim teaching as a, quote, school of affliction and an onerous bore of tending to the rudiments of education for, quote, a large number of runtlings just capable of lisping ABC and troubling the master. He would hem-haw for over a year, even at one point considering a career in medicine, before he finally contracted for an apprenticeship with Wooster's leading attorney, James Putnam, in late August 1756 for a $100 fee. On the day he entered into this arrangement, Adams wrote in his diary that, quote, Necessity drove me to this determination, but my inclination, I think, was to preach. Though he would continue during the day to serve as schoolmaster, Adams would move in with Putnam and read law in the evening. By the fall of 1758, Adams had completed his apprenticeship, and, like many college students in the present era, 2018 as of this recording, moved back in with his parents in Braintree for a short time. He had been offered the position of town registrar in Wooster as a means of supporting himself while starting up his own law practice in that town, but Adams had refused the offer, as he did not want to compete with Putnam or anyone else. At that point, Braintree had no formally trained attorney. Even more importantly, it fell in the Boston Judicial District, which would provide him with an opportunity to earn more recognition than a legal practice in Wooster. Despite the advantages afforded by starting his practice in Braintree, John did struggle in his first couple of years. However, it was during this time that he became close to Richard Cranch, described by Adam's biographer John Furling as, quote, a mature immigrant from England who farmed, made and repaired watches, and operated a small glass manufactory in Braintree. On the whole, though, again, from Furling, quote, Adams during this time had many acquaintances, but few friends and yearned in vain for recognition from his peers. Before we move any further along in Adams' story, I'd like to take a minute to talk about something that would take up a good deal of time in Adams' life, as well as would help to determine how future generations would approach him. During his tenure in Harvard, John had made an attempt at journaling that ultimately fizzled out, 
but he would pick it up once more during his time in Worcester. While Adams would not be as meticulous in keeping his diary as his son John Quincy, sometimes falling out of the habit, the diaries that he did keep and the observations which he recorded in them are a wealth of knowledge for historians and provide us with greater insight into Adams's thinking than we sometimes have with Washington. Along the same lines, the preservation of their extensive correspondence gives us greater insight into the relationship between Adams and the woman who he would come to call his dearest friend than we have in the relationship between George and Martha Washington. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Like many young men starting off in life, John's mind turned to love. Though as a boy, Adams had been friendly with people of the opposite gender, the 20-something Adams struggled a bit more. John Furling, in his biography of Adams, describes John as, quote, shy and uncomfortable in the presence of women, and as his writings throughout his life indicate, troubled by feelings of guilt and constraint in sexual matters. He would at one point focus his attentions on Hannah Quincy, but though, quote, the couple often talked about marriage, it was always in an oblique manner. John was still trying to make his way in the world and held off on proposing, instead urging himself in his diary to, quote, let no trifling diversion or amusement or company decoy you from your books. Ultimately, one of his Harvard classmates beat John to the punch and ended up taking the marriage vows with Hannah. It was during this time of heartache in 1759 that John met Abigail Smith. Abigail was the daughter of the Reverend William Smith and Elizabeth Quincy Smith of the nearby town of Weymouth. When they first met, Abigail was 15 while John was 24, and it seems like their first meeting was not love at first sight. They would spend a little time together in 1759, but after that, it would be two more years before they would come together again. The two years helped to mature both. And this time, sparks started flying to the point that by the spring of 1763, the two were spending a great deal of time together and beginning to discuss marriage. Likely part of what had helped to mature the young Adams was the death of his father, Deacon John, during an influenza epidemic on May 25, 1761. As the eldest-born male, John was expected to assume the role of head of the family. And, as noted by Adams' biographer David McCullough, quote, as time passed, those expressions of self-doubt, the fits of despair and self-consciousness that had so characterized the outpourings in his diary grew fewer. The death of his father gave John the opportunity to chart the course of his own life in numerous respects, including the fact that he inherited a third of his father's estate and thus, as quote, a freeholder, he was for the first time able to hold public office. With John establishing his first law office in what had at one time been the kitchen in the Adams household, and with his friend William Cranch marrying Abigail's sister Mary in 1762, it seems that the worlds of John and Abigail, now on firmer ground, were drawing ever closer. Still, though, he hesitated, and the months and then the year went by. As Abigail's biographer Lynn Withy comments, quote, At that point, John's concern about being able to provide adequately for a family was apparently what delayed the marriage. John never thought he had enough money. Abigail would begin to prod him, and finally in the spring of 1763, he would agree to marry. The marriage would have to be delayed, though. A smallpox epidemic had broken out in Boston, and as a young and ambitious lawyer, John often went into Boston for business. Rather than lose out on business for a long period, John decided to undergo an inoculation. 
As we discussed in the second Washington pre-presidency episode, inoculations were still a fairly new business and, as noted by Withy, was, quote, an uncomfortable, time-consuming, and potentially dangerous process. Abigail expressed her desire to be inoculated as well, but her mother refused to consent. Thus, John underwent the procedure alone, clearing his calendar for six weeks. John would survive the process, and upon his discharge, would have, quote, a meal of two and one-half dozen oysters, washed down by Malaga, a strong, sweet dessert wine, before reuniting with Abigail. All complications out of the way, the two were finally wed on October 25, 1764, at the meeting house in Abigail's hometown of Weymouth, with her father officiating. We'll talk a bit more about the ceremony and Abigail in a special episode I'm planning to focus on her life and contributions as First Lady. Suffice it to say, theirs was a unique partnership from the beginning, and the two would establish their household full of happiness and love. The house they would move into was described by Furling as, quote, a century-old salt box, a small, unpainted cottage facing the main road of Braintree and occupying the lot next door to the house in which John had been raised. The downstairs consisted of a spacious kitchen, a seldom-utilized parlor, John's study, and cramped quarters for Judah, the family's servant. Four bedrooms made up the second floor, although two were tiny cubicles squeezed beneath the eaves. The house squatted on the foreside of John's little farm, a plot of only 40 infacoon acres, a rather unrelenting tract that at least surrendered firewood and tolerated livestock, apple trees, a summer garden, and a hen house. The 1760s would also see John engage the public in print. His first printed work would be a series of satirical essays published in 1763 under the name of Humphrey Plowjogger, in which he adopted the style of, quote, a rube who was heedless of the rules of grammar and spelling to critique both sides in a political debate at the time. Before the year was up, though, he would see more serious essays published, though not under his name, of course. As we've discussed, it was common practice for individuals to write under pseudonyms, or anonymously, for plausible deniability should someone get upset over what was written. Adams was increasingly making his voice heard, though. And at that point in history, there was much to discuss in the British North American colonies, for 1765 would bring the Stamp Act and the vehement protest over it. This act was a tax that the British Parliament had levied against various documents in the North American colonies, including newspapers, legal and commercial documents, and even playing cards, as a means of recouping financial losses incurred during the Seven Years' War, or, as it is often referred to in the U.S., the French and Indian War. Adams would pull Humphrey Plowjogger out of retirement that fall to put in his two cents on the Stamp Act. Humphrey, however, would take a different tack than other commentators at the time. As noted by Furling, quote, Whereas many of the protest leaders depicted the duty as a threat to the unsullied innocence of America, Plowjogger saw in colonial resistance a means by which the old-time virtues that once prevailed in New England might be restored. Cheap liquor, fancy clothes, they were far too prevalent in New England nowadays, argued Humphrey. And in a time where the way of life in the colonies was now threatened by the acts of Parliament, in order to set a course forward, Humphrey argued that, quote, naughty jacks and trollops should leave off such vanity and show themselves worthy of their ancestors with the highest reverence for virtue. This essay highlights the conservatism that would be at the heart of Adams's ideology for the remainder of his life. 
Though at this point, he only played a minor role in developments in Massachusetts. Adams would, at the end of the year, recall 1765 as being, quote, the most remarkable of his life. Though he would not play an active role in the protests of the Stamp Act, despite his cousin Samuel's attempts to recruit him, John would contribute his pen to the cause and would publish numerous essays in 1765 and 1766. During this time, John was more focused on building up his legal career and in supporting his growing family. In July 1765, John and Abigail's first child, a daughter also named Abigail, but who the family would call Nabby, was born while John was away on legal business. While he tried to keep the debate over the Stamp Act from interfering in his career, on November 1st, it would intrude into his professional life, as well as that of many citizens of Massachusetts. It was on that day that the provisions of the Stamp Act went into effect, and as, due to the threats and intimidation of opponents of the Act, quote, there were neither stamp collectors nor stamps to be found. No stamps meant no paper, and no paper meant that numerous businesses that depended on paper had to be closed. The Port of Boston, as well as other Massachusetts ports, were closed. The presses of newspapers were shut down. Most important to John, court business was suspended which meant that he and his fellow lawyers would have no work until they reopened. This would not stop John, though. As noted by Furling, quote, Of course, he was unable to abandon his work. When at home, he closeted himself for long hours in his study, reading and preparing for the day when he could resume his practice. He also seized every opportunity to speed away to Boston, one day for lunch with an important politician, another day to dine at the elegant table of a powerful merchant and on still other occasions, to spend convivial evenings with leading activists in the popular movement against the Stamp Act. His attentions would turn more homeward when Abigail and Nabby fell ill in the winter, and he had to manage the household and the business of the family farm. However, as his prospects were improving, he also had, quote, two servants and two hired hands to look after the house and the farm. His family would ultimately recover, the Stamp Act would be repealed, and John would be back to work at the law. As noted by McCullough, after Adams went back to work, quote, he was back on the road, riding the circuit, the reach of his travels extending more than 200 miles, from the island of Martha's Vineyard off Cape Cod, north to Maine, which was then part of the Massachusetts Bay Province, to as far west as Worcester. He handled every type of case, land transfers, trespass, admiralty, marine insurance, murder, adultery, rape, bastardy, buggery, assault and battery, tarring and feathering. He defended not always successfully poor debtors, horse thieves, and smugglers. He saw every side of life, learned to see things as they were, and was considered, as Samuel Sewell would write, as honest a lawyer as ever broke bread. The new year of 1766 would see the now 30-something-year-old Adams take up the mantle of public office for the first time when he was elected as a selectman in Braintree. However, this office was not enough for the ambitious man. At a time where new leaders such as James Otis Jr. and his cousin Samuel Adams were gaining greater authority in Massachusetts, he had hoped that he would be chosen for election to the colonial legislature. Unlike other parts of the state, Braintree had not been swept up in the movement that had sprouted from opposition to the Stamp Act and thus passed John over. Though continuing his law practice, his work on the farm, and his essay writing, John began to consider his and his family's future. His family was growing as Abigail gave birth to their second child, a son named John Quincy, in July 1767, while John was again away riding the legal circuit. 
Out of both business and personal interest, John increasingly spent more time in Boston, where, as noted by Furling, he, quote, often passed the evening hours at the table of a friend or in a tavern with political activists, listening to their bombast and intrigue, perhaps venting his own notions. By 1768, he decided that the time had come for a change, and in April, he moved his family to, quote, a clapboard house on Brattle Street in Boston. The family would move a couple of times while living in the city, but having Abigail and the children in Boston meant that John could spend more time with them while also being on hand for events that would shape the future of Massachusetts and North America as a whole. The Stamp Act may have been defeated, but that didn't mean that the British government was done trying to collect more revenue and exert greater influence over its North American colonies. To that end, Parliament passed the Townsend Duties to establish new taxes on the, quote, importation of British glass, lead, paint, paper, and tea into the colonies. A five-member Board of Customs was established for Boston in order to ensure that the duties were collected, and the New York Colonial Assembly was suspended for circumventing the Quartering Act of 1765. New protests and meetings sprung up in various colonies up and down the East Coast, and like many colonists, John Adams had to consider what side to take. Ideologically, he was with the opponents to the new acts, but as noted by Furling, quote, years of legal study and practice had left him not only deeply respectful of the parent state and its institutions, but also with a reverential attitude toward the sanctity of the law. To defy lawfully constituted authority, was an almost unthinkable proposition. He was not alone in terms of Massachusetts lawyers being concerned about opposing the British government, as nearly half of their number would either remain loyal to the British during the Revolution, or at the very least, not become actively involved in the Revolution. Adams, however, would become involved behind the scenes, working with the Sons of Liberty and writing essays and treaties against the Townsend Acts and other British quote-unquote mischiefs both before and after British troops landed in Boston in 1768. As the decade ended, John slowly but surely started stepping out of the shadows to support the cause, but an event in 1770 would threaten his growing reputation as the defender of the rights of the populace. On the night of March 5th, John was attending a meeting of a group of lawyers when a crowd of Bostonians approached the British Army barracks, which were not far from the Adams' home at the time. As described by Furling, quote, The British soldiers formed a semicircle and wielded bayoneted muskets at a jeering, taunting crowd of perhaps 400, while some in the crowd dared the soldiers to shoot. More sensible bystanders, like the young bookseller Henry Knox, that's right, our old friend Knox was there, talked with the British commander, urging him not to give the order to fire. However, things escalated quickly. Quote, a hothead in the crowd threw a club, which struck a soldier. Immediately, a shot rang out, followed by a pause of about six seconds, followed in turn by a round of shots. Several men in the mob were hit, five mortally. The commander of the British force, Captain Thomas Preston, enraged that his men had fired without orders, ran down the line screaming for the shooting to cease. Once he restored order, Preston reassembled his men and marched them away. The troops departed unmolested, for the shooting had stunned and immobilized the crowd. Abigail, who is at this point seven months pregnant with their fourth child, had been at the Adams' house while all of this was going on and had listened to the turmoil from inside. 
John, however, only learned of the events of the evening when he and his colleagues heard an alarm bell being rung in the middle of the city, and they rushed to the scene, thinking it was a call to assist with putting out a fire, but learning that the fire was more of an ideological, passionate nature. The confrontation, which would quickly be dubbed the Boston Massacre, indeed inflamed the passions of many of Boston's citizens, and the city remained on edge as it waited to see what would happen next. Thankfully, a calm settled in as the Sons of Liberty took another tact and sought justice for the Boston Massacre through legal means. By the end of March, a grand jury had issued indictments against Captain Preston, the soldiers under his command, and two men from the Customs House who were, quote, accused of having fired into the crowd from a window. Adams's friend and associate Samuel Quincy was appointed as special prosecutor in the case, and Quincy secured the assistance of Robert Treat Payne. Captain Preston and his men, meanwhile, sought counsel for their defense. To highlight just how difficult it was to find someone willing to take the case, the two men from the Customs House were never able to get a lawyer and had to appear at trial on their own. The British soldiers, however, would be a bit luckier, as there was a Boston lawyer willing to take their case. I'll give you two guesses who it was. That's right, John Adams took the case and brought in Josiah Quincy to help him. Now, as we've already seen, Adams was not one who stuck his neck out on the line willy-nilly, and historians over the years have taken up the task time and again of trying to decipher John's motivations for taking up the defense in a case that, as it is commonly acknowledged, was a hot potato. Some have argued that it was John's virtue and belief that everyone deserved a fair trial that led him to agree to present the defense's case. However, as John Furling points out, there were a couple of other possible motivations. It seems as if Josiah Quincy had been convinced by Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty to assist Adams with the case, as they thought that it was a sure thing that a Boston jury would find the British soldiers guilty, but wanted to ensure that everything looked fair and above the board in order to legitimize their case of grievances against the quote-unquote injustices of the British government. It is quite possible that Adams was similarly convinced. Another possible motivator is fame. Again, as we've seen already, though Adams is risk-averse, he is also highly ambitious. It could be that he thought the outcome of the trial was assured as well, and though he might suffer temporarily from people accusing him of betraying the cause, he would ultimately be respected for demonstrating ideals of justice and equal rights before the law, which would enhance his reputation. Furling also points out one additional possible motivation, the promise of a political office. As Furling notes, quote, When one of Boston's seats in the legislature opened three months after the Boston Massacre, John Adams was the town's first choice to fill the vacancy. Though we have no way of knowing for certain, as it could have been any one of these reasons or some combination thereof, whatever his motivation was, it overcame any trepidation he may have had and John Adams took up the defense of the British soldiers. As noted by Adams' biographer Paige Smith, quote, Only fragmentary notes on the trial of Captain Preston in September have been preserved, but from what we know, it seems that Adams and Quincy were able to quickly make the case that there was reasonable doubt on whether Preston had in fact given the order to fire, and that, from the evidence given in testimony, it was more likely that he did not. Instead, it seemed more probable, quote, that one of the soldiers, goaded beyond endurance, had fired, 
and the others had taken the report of the musket as the signal to fire as well. Thus, Preston was found not guilty by his jury. Next up was the trial of the other soldiers. Surely, everyone felt, these soldiers who without a doubt had fired at the crowd would be found guilty. However, Adams and Quincy were not willing to just accept what others saw as inevitable. First, they used their influence in the jury selection process to, quote, exclude every man on the jury panel who was from Boston or its immediate vicinity. The jurors so carefully chosen were countrymen who would be less apt to sympathize with the Boston mob or feel pressures to return a verdict of guilty. In the trial, they laid out an argument that the soldiers were provoked by the mob to fire and that they were justified in the actions they had taken in order to defend themselves. They also painted the prosecution as playing more on the question of whether British soldiers should be stationed in Boston in the first place and made the valid point that that question was outside of the scope of the decision before the jury. The soldiers had not sought out a confrontation. They were just following orders being there and had as much of a right to defend themselves against the mob as any British citizen. John Adams, in his closing arguments, remarked that, quote, Facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. To your candor and justice, I submit the prisoners and their causes. In the end, six of the soldiers were fully acquitted, while two were found guilty of manslaughter, but were only punished by being, quote, branded on their thumbs before they were dismissed. Adams and Quincy had achieved what was seen as impossible. They had saved the British soldiers from the gallows from which the most passionate Bostonians wished for them. Immediately after, John faced his share of ridicule, including from his cousin Samuel Adams, who wrote an essay against him under the pseudonym of Vendex. But by this point, he had already assumed his seat in the Massachusetts General Court, a seat to which he had been, quote, elected by a large majority in the spring. However, John would be entering the Legislative Assembly in a time of increased agitation and passionate fervor. Despite their disagreement over the outcome of the Boston Massacre trials, John and Samuel Adams would pair up in the general court and become a formidable team. Their partnership in the legislature would not last long, however, as in early 1771, Abigail fell ill and, through his concern for her, and overwork with his legal practice and legislative duties, John began to suffer from ill health as well. As noted by Smith, quote, he began to suffer from pains in his chest and a rattling, racking cough, which depleted his energy and left him tired and nervous. At this point, he was 35, no longer the young, ambitious man that he had been, and he needed to think about how best to take care of himself and his growing family. Thus, after Abigail and John discussed the situation, they moved their family back to their farmhouse in Braintree on April 13th, and John resigned his seat in the general court. As before, though, with his legal practice requiring him to ride the circuit around the state, as well as the extensive amount of time that he spent at his law office, which he had kept in Boston, John grew tired of being separated from his family for long periods of time. He wrote to Abigail in May 1772 that, quote, I want to see my wife and children every day. I want to see my grass and blossoms and corns, etc. every day. But above all, except the wife and children, I want to see my books. None of these amusements are to be had. 
On a humorous tangent, I should note that in the original letter, as you can see through the link on my sources page for this episode, he had to add in the whole quote-unquote accept the wife and children part in the sentence about wanting to see his books. I guess he realized that Abigail would be none too pleased if he left it as quote, but above all, I want to see my books. But I digress. The family had been through a great deal already in the early 1770s. They had suffered tragedy with the loss of their third child, Susanna, in 1770, and then added one more to their number with the birth of Charles Adams that same year. And rather than come together to cope with all of the change happening both in their household and in Massachusetts, they were instead apart more than ever. Whatever their hopes for the return to Braintree, it seems that neither was truly happy about the situation. For in August 1772, John, quote, purchased a substantial brick house in Boston. They could not move just yet, though, as Abigail was once again pregnant with their fifth child. And on September 15, 1772, Thomas Boylston Adams was born. After a period of rest, Abigail and the children made their return to Boston in November. The move back to Boston would not ease Adams' anxiety, as he wrote in his diary on his 37th birthday, quote, What an Adam! An animacule I am. The remainder of my days I shall rather decline in sense, spirit, and activity. My season for acquiring knowledge is past, and yet I have my own and my children's fortunes to make. My boyish habits and airs are not yet worn off. Little could he have known of the achievements, the travel, and the responsibility ahead of him, as we shall learn more about next time in the second pre-presidency episode. For the sources used for this episode, or if you'd like to go back and listen to episodes of my series on the presidency of George Washington, all of that can be found at the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There are also options on the website that will allow you to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Or the podcast is also available on Spotify or Podchaser. Should you have any questions or comments, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Thanks again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode, and I thank you all so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.